The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. Watch the left field deep. Bam going back. Looking up. He will watch it fly. And 29 other MLB clubs. 2-2 pitch on Trout, and he blasts one. Way back. It's one out. So he's your home run derby champion. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe. From spin rate to juiced balls to game-changing moments, we have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. He's one of the greatest left-handed pitchers in Oakland A's history. He was a Cy Young Award winner. He's a World Series champion, a three-time All-Star, a musician, and also now an author. Barry Zito joins us here on A's Cast Live. How you doing, Barry? I'm doing great. How are you? We're, we're doing fantastic. The ball club's playing well. And uh, let's talk about this new book, Curveball, How I Discovered True Fulfillment After Chasing Fortune and Fame, coming out September 17th, 2019. Yes, sir. That is that is it, man. It's, uh, it's just been a lot of fun to write. It's been about a two-year process. But um, I think the key to that is really just saying saying what I wanted to hear you know going into the big leagues if I read something like that I probably would have had a lot less head games with myself and probably put a lot less pressure on myself and um so it's it's in a lot of ways it's a letter to my younger self and almost like a warning firing a warning shot here (laughs) this isn't uh, all cracked up to be man it's it can be a little miserable out here sometimes in the world so you know, I, I think of when you put a book out, it's like showing your soul, and it's a lot of work. Just talk about everything you've done to, to, to make this thing happen. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, it's just been a lot of, it's been a lot of, like, how do I tell this story, you know? And at the end of the day, I mean, we hear these interviews with players, you know, whether they're on a hot streak or a cold streak, and, you know, they kind of give the standard answer, right? And the media latches on to the guys that are a little more honest. But to be truthful, you're, you're not always getting the full story about what's going on inside of a guy's head. And, you know, he could be terrified to go out there on the mound or get up to the plate, but he's not going to tell anybody that. And so, you know, this book is a very vulnerable kind of open way of saying this is what was really going on in my head and, and, you know, in other teammates of mine's heads when things weren't really going their way and trying to explain a little bit of, you know, what's behind that when you're, you know, you're just trying to go out there and perform and you can end up trying to do things to make the fans happy and really to, to uh, gain self-worth out there by performing. And that's really the wrong approach to have, you know, when playing a sport that's crazy like baseball. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a a journey of how I went from putting my identity, uh, into my baseball performance to finding it somewhere else. Yeah. And it's a game of failure and some guys, you know, you're, you are going to struggle. I mean, every, I mean, the other guys get paid too, as we like to say, and and they're going to have their time against you. And I and I think when like yesterday we saw Chris Bassett who threw a very good game, but after the game he was so critical of himself, saying it was the best fastball he had. But he used the term "the rest of my stuff was just crap." So, you know, when you look that guy in the mirror, sometimes it's tough, Barry. When you know when you're struggling, and, and, and 
you really have to diagnose your own stuff. It's not easy. Yeah, no, it's really true. I mean, and I think having a perspective going in to anything that we're trying to do in life, you know, we're trying to be successful and, you know, we're all trying to make a living and do these things, but to have perspective that, you know, there's certain things that I can control and there's certain things I can't. And I think, you know, I read a statistic once that the biggest reason that people are unhappy is because they're placing their happiness on all these factors that are out of their own control. And, you know, that was me for sure. I was, you know, if I took a, took a win that day, uh, then I was walking on, you know, clouds and felt like I was the greatest dude on the planet. And, you know, if I gave up eight earned in three innings, I wouldn't even leave my apartment, you know? And so you, you can't live like that. And so, um, a lot of it has to do with us really trying to control things we can. How much have you learned in your life from the time when you really were struggling in baseball? How much, how much has that helped you and how much have you learned from it? I mean, that's been my greatest teacher. Absolutely. Um, you know, the struggle is always when we learn, right? We don't really learn much in good times. We just kind of fail, you know, it's like the roller coasters clickety clacking it up in the, up to the top there. And I think that's the pain and struggle and we're just trying to get up the hill. And then, you know, when times are good, man, we're just flying down that thing and enjoying the wind in our face, having a great time. But for me, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful of the struggles, even though they were so hard because I really found out who I was, you know, outside of baseball and have taken that, you know, that mindset and really that, that truth, I think just into the rest of my life and, and just having a blast now, I'm, I feel so much more peaceful inside, which is a huge win. And what was the feeling like, too, when you made your big comeback in 2012 and you pitched so well for the Giants in the playoffs and the NLCS and the World Series, you got back to the top of that mountain. What was that like for you to get back there? You know, it's funny because if you would have asked me the first five years of my Giants contract, you know, hey, what would you give to go be a, you know, playoff kind of hero, World Series, you know, game one, you know, get the win, all that stuff. I was like, oh, man, I would give you both both arms and both legs. You know, it's, that's all I wanted to do was vindicate myself in the eyes of Giants fans and, and really deliver what I was paid to deliver. Um, but the, the irony is that once I realized that, you know, after getting left off the roster in 2010, that I wasn't going to get where I had to go, you know, with that mindset of it's all about me and, you know, I'm going to get redemption no matter what. I mean, I just gave up all attachment to success and really just tried to start having a great time and throw the ball as good as I could. And really, if I was going to suck out there, okay, man, so be it. <laughs> and so that mindset is actually what brought me the success in 2012. And uh, I actually can't really even take credit for it, man, because I feel like I didn't do much. I just did the best I could. And uh, so I didn't really bask in the redemption that I think people were hoping I would. <laughs> Well, it, 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 look at your career, and, and I think about at the height of your powers, like in 2002, when you were so dominant, what is it like to be on that mound and to dominate like that? And you also, you know, you, Hudson Mulder, Zito, the three of you were all rolling at the same time. That just had to be a blast. Yeah, no, it was it was a blast. And I think, you know, they have this uh, this thing they talk about with the – the arc of, you know, the master or mastery. And they talk about, you know, at the beginning of your career, you're unconsciously competent, right? You're just a stud. You don't know why. And I think that's what I was in Oakland. We didn't really know what we were doing. We were just good. 
And then, you know, the next, the next stage of that is conscious incompetence, which is, we know what that is. And then the final stage of mastery is conscious competence. So um, for me, I can't really, I don't know what was going on in Oakland those early years, man. I was just having a great time. And for some reason, you know, <laughs> these guys were striking out. Yeah, no doubt about it. And the three of you guys were just so dominant and you had so many great players around you with MVPs and Cy Young Awards. It was such a good time in A's baseball. Yeah. You know, you know when, when, when I think about what's the future of the game, I really think it's neuroscience. I think it's really working on players, their mentality, their brains. And I think you can speak to that because you can show people curveballs and spin rates and all this kind of stuff. But really, the, the most important muscle is the one in between your ears. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's and when I started to realize that, I think, you know, halfway through my career, I would look around at the guys that, you know, placed all of their self-worth right and their identity in the game. And those are the guys that were so miserable and that were, you know, taking different substances and, you know, drinking at night and trying to deal with, right, the the roller coaster emotionally. And then there was just those few guys that were so incredible. They had such perspective and they knew that they were kind of more than the game of baseball. And uh, and those are the guys, I think, that you see, you know, riding out these great careers because, you know, they're actually keeping their sanity through most of it. And they treat the game like it should be treated. It's a game. Go have fun. Do your best. End of story. And, uh, you know, but there are many guys, myself included, that could not approach it that way. It was just too intense, man. So I, I'm, uh, I'm assuming you probably talk about this in the book, but if Barry Zito could go back now to a younger Barry Zito where you had multiple you know, whether it's the start of your career, middle of your career, end of your career, what kind of advice would Barry Zito go back and give give to you back then? Oh, man, uh, that's a great question. I think I would because I didn't have a great foundation for what was important and what wasn't. I, I kind of was raised being taught that, you know, baseball is the end all be all. If I if I'm a great champion in baseball, then life is perfect. So. I would tell myself, Hey, you're not that special. <laughs> you're not that important. Uh, no matter if you have success and you think everyone's talking about you and thinking about you before they go to sleep at night, they're actually not. And, uh, so just go have fun and enjoy it. And I mean, that's, that's something I, if you told me that I would have been like, get out of here, man, come on. <laughs> no, this is all about me. You know, um, not in a, not in a kind of an arrogant way, but just about what I was raised believing, you know? So I would, I would give myself a little perspective, maybe a little kick in the butt there. How hard is it to separate the money when, when you're performing? How hard is it just to, as you said, go out and have fun and not think about the money? Um, it is pretty hard. I mean, you know, especially when you have, you know, huge newspapers and, talk show people and they're all talking about you and you know, you're sitting there going, man, I just got paid an amount of money that I couldn't even fathom being attached to my name, uh, in my whole life, you know? And so all I want to do is go out there and pitch well and show these people that I'm worth the money. And so the intention is good, right? I mean, good intentions lead the way to hell. Right. And so for me, I just wanted to perform well to, to say, Hey guys, I I'm, I'm trying, I want to do this, but you can't do that because you start to try to be some kind of superhuman and you were never meant to do that. You were just meant to go through that ball the best you could. 
and uh, you know, like I said, that wasn't something I could master was that that psychological approach. The book is called Curveball: How I Discovered True Fulfillment After Chasing Fortune and Fame. It's going to be out September seventeenth. 2019. You can also check out BarryZitoMusic.com. That's BarryZitoMusic.com. Before we let you go, we know you got other interviews to do. How is music coming along and your writing going? Oh, music's great, man. I'm having such a good time. Been setting up a little studio and working on all that kind of stuff and going to get back to writing songs here soon after all this book stuff settles down. So I'm just, again, just so grateful to be having something to sink my teeth into, man. Barry, you're the best, uh, and, and congratulations on the book. Good luck with it, and when it comes out, let's have you on again and promote it again. That sounds great, buddy. I really appreciate it. Jose, how you doing? It's Chris Townsend with the Oakland Athletics. Thank you for coming on. Good. Great to be here. Stop saying good things about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you, you know, I'm not used to that. <laughs> hey, when we did that, when we when we did that event in Concord, it, it just showed all those A's fans. How no matter what people say, A's fans absolutely love you. They will always love you. Well, I, I think it was just a very interesting era in baseball. I think eras evolved and changed, and, and it's you know been modified. And you know, you had of course, you know the the the, the high mound era. You had the lack of home run era. You had the home run era. You had the uh, the juice ball era, whatever. But I, I think you know baseball is the greatest game in the world. And baseball has survived everything. And, you know, 100 years, 200 years down the line, baseball will be thriving even more than what it is today. It's just the greatest game in the world. You know, I think about your career, and, and my, my producer was born in 1988, and I'm trying to tell these kids that in the 80s and the 90s, you know, we talk about players, how people don't really know the players today. You were a rock star back in the day. What was it like for Jose Canseco to go out on the road with the A's? You know, it was pretty interesting. Some other uh, writers wrote that, I guess, when we walked into either restaurants or nightclubs and even, I'm an honest guy, some strip clubs at times. Yeah, we were very well noted. We were the Oakland A's. We were the Bash Brothers. And, you know, we, we did things that other organizations weren't doing back then. I, I think at that time we had so many different characters, so many different identities, and so many rock stars and superstars on our team, it was just amazing. And you know what? We have a lot of great characters, a lot of great chemistry, and we won games in a certain way that other teams weren't doing it. Have you seen the Bash Brothers thing on Netflix that they've put together? <laughs> yes. Actually, I saw it. I actually loved it. I, I thought it was a great kind of spoof. I thought it was hilarious. I thought at times they were pretty accurate. At times they were over the top. But, you know, I kind of made fun about an era that actually happened. So it was all in great fun. I actually went on tour with the Lonely Island uh, the last two days of their tour schedule and actually appeared with them and acted like I was go I was stalking them. I was going to hit them with a baseball bat. And I said, okay, guys, you know, if, if you're going to make fun of me, at least let me show you how to do it the right way. We had a lot of fun with it. They yeah. were a, a bunch of great guys. Yeah, Andy Sandberg for uh, SNL. Yeah. He did. It, it, it was. It was. We've had a lot of fun with it. I can tell you, as A's fans, we've had a lot of fun. And you know, we're celebrating. Are, are you showing up for the uh, the event to celebrate 1989? 
We're working on it right now. We're looking at the schedule, see if I can make it. Yeah, I, I think whenever you guys get together, what a special team that was. You guys just had so much firepower. You had the great pitching. You had the you had the great bullpen. Just talk about what it was like to be on that team. You know, it's ironic because it was very. It was a. Uh, you know, we had great talent, and our chemistry was amazing. We had the veteran leadership. I mean, we had the offense. We had we had the uh, defense. We had Ricky, who at will can can still base. We had the Bass brothers. I mean, we had a huge. Supporting role, we had Dennis Eckley, Dave Stewart. We had so many great guys, so many great characters. And I, I think at that time, not only did we have a great team, we had a fundamentally sound team, we had the best manager in baseball, Tony LaRouche at the time, but we had a very entertaining team. We had a team that people knew about. We had certain different characters. And I tell you, LaRouche did a great job, not just you know putting these guys on the field, making that lineup, but making sure that we we work well together as, as teammates. Yeah, we just had the Hall of Famer Tony LaRusso on this program, and it, you know it's funny. He he to this day he says it still bothers him to this day that you guys only won one World Series. That's what he said on this show. I agree. I agree with him one hundred percent. We had, I think, at the time the best well-rounded ball club in baseball, but. You know, I, I think people have to understand this, and that's why the the, uh, the odds makers aren't always correct. I've always said this. It's not the best team that wins in a seven-game series. It's the team that plays the best that's going to win in that seven-game series. You know, all these teams we actually played against, take the, uh, uh, the Dodgers. I mean, they beat us in a seven-game series. They just basically outplayed us. That's what they did. But if we were playing in a series of 50 games, I think we would win 40 of those 50 games. But I don't know. Uh, everything, I mean, they had Hershiser. Uh, everything they did was just perfect. They had guys hitting home runs that should not have been hitting home runs. Of course, they had Hershiser that, that, that would shut us down. Um, they had great defense. They just basically outplayed us. You know, and I think about 1988, your MVP year, and when you were you became the first guy to go 40-40, you know, there's been other people to go 40-40, but you went 40-40 in a year where your team was winning and going to the World Series. We've seen we've seen other guys do it when their teams were terrible and it didn't matter. Well, I, I think the main difference was that at that time no one had done the 40-40. And at that time I actually came in the spring training saying that I was gonna do the 40-40 that year almost think that I think I put my foot in my mouth because, you know, I didn't really realize that no one had done the 40-40 before. I thought it was something difficult to do, but I thought it had been done before. So at that point in time, when I said I was going to do in spring, you know, spring training, I was going to do the 40-40, I thought, oh my God, either I, I <laughs> you know, either I'm going to do the 40-40 and maybe win the MVP and get rated one of the best players in the world or look like the, uh, the uh, GOAT, but everything turned out perfect. Well, you all, you promised your mother that you were going to be the best player in baseball, and you became that. And you mentioned Tony Larusa. What was it like playing for him? I'll tell you, um, the most intense manager I've ever played with. I played with seven, eight other other ball clubs, seven, eight other managers, of course. But the most well prepared, the most intense guy. Um, he was constantly trying to figure out how to outmaneuver the other team. I mean, he was an attorney. I, I, I guess he played great, great chess also. But, it, you know, w when you're talking about getting to that ballpark, 
I think Larusa was so intense. I don't think I ever saw him smile, to be honest with you, when it came to being on that field because he was trying in every angle possible, every which way, to really, you know, acquire us an, an edge to win that game. So in that sense, what a great manager, a Hall of Fame manager, as a matter of fact. You know, the documentary w- was so good, and it just showed how you got blackballed in baseball. You know, when, when everybody was trying to deny PEDs and you came out and you actually told the truth, ha- has life changed for you since that documentary that now more people know that so many people were lying and you weren't? Well, it just changed completely around. In the, in the very beginning, of course, I was called a liar, a snitch, um, that I had destroyed Major League Baseball. But uh, years and years have passed, and I, I, you know, the book came out, and people really analyzed the total situation, the environment we were in, and of course now they realize, yeah, that was something that happened at the point of total steroid use in Major League Baseball. I mean, at the peak, yeah, probably 80% of the players were using it. You know what? But I think people have to understand this: that when that era started. You know, PDs were not illegal in Major League Baseball. We really didn't even know exactly what they were and exactly what they did. But till Major League Baseball instilled the um, the fines and the in the game suspensions in Major League Baseball, I mean, PDs were not illegal. That that happened l- later on. So we have testing today. How 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 put a percentage on it? What you think probably players are using today? I would say zero. I would say that it's not worth it. I mean, you've got these huge fines, you've got these huge sus- suspensions, and I don't really think pe- these players need these, these PEDs. I, I think PEDs, you know, they were just, they were just given too much credit. It, it's almost saying that if none of these, if all these players that use PEDs, you're going to tell me they would never be in, in the major leagues. For example, let's take for example, I'm going to give you, Two perfect examples of why PEDs are overrated. Number one, Mark McGuire. In 1987, he was not using PEDs. He hit 49 home runs. And back then, the ballpark rated where the ball carried the, the least. It was a dungeon. We had the biggest foul territory. If you would have put him in Colorado, he probably would have hit 70 home runs. Now, I have an identical twin brother. Him and I used the identical PEDs. We did the same workouts. We, we ate the same foods and, and took the same nutrition. Why didn't he make it to the major leagues and, and do the 40-40 and hit monsters home runs? That just goes to show you PEDs are completely overrated. I hate these people that are saying, oh, you know what? I could have made it to the major leagues. If I would have just injected myself, I would have been a major league superstar. <laughs> That's, so from, That's so far from the truth. It's laughable. And guys who get caught now, their excuse is always, it was a, you know, I bought this, I bought this from wherever, and it's, it, it was tainted. Do you buy that excuse when they say it's uh, tainted and they get, t- when they test positive? Well, you have to look at both sides of the coins. The, the problem is that there are so many substances out there out in the market that will give a false positive when you, when you take these PD testing. There are so many uh, supplements, there are so many. Uh, uh, you know, vitamins, there, 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 there's so many things out there that it could work. I, I think players just have to look at that player uniform list and look at these so-called items that could not be used at all, and they have to be extremely careful with them. 
Jose, it is always great to catch up with you. I truly appreciate the time, and I know all A's fans would love to see you for the celebration for 1989. Thank you, guys. Hopefully I can make it. I appreciate it. Farhan Zaidi joins us here. He's the president of baseball operations for the San Francisco Giants, and it's just it's weird seeing you with the Giants, seeing vote with the Giants, <laughs> but uh, how have you been? Been good. It's, it's nice to see familiar faces, and I agree. It's a little weird for me, too, seeing all the old friends from Oakland and realizing, oh, I'm, I'm with the Giants now, but uh, this organization's been great. We've had a fun year, so it's, it's fun to get together for this series. I think it'll be a really fun two days. Yeah, I remember the first time I met you was actually during a game. I had to go down to talk to Billy Bean about our Ford commercials mm-hmm. and you guys were working out during that. I mean, this was year. I don't even remember what year this was. So it's been a long time and, and, and congratulations on the success from what you did with the Dodgers to what you're doing now with the Giants. Thanks. I appreciate it. And I gave Billy a lot of grief for those Ford commercials, as you may well know. I, I kept uh, all those uh, YouTube links and would bring them up every time he walked into my office. But um, I appreciate it. And, you know, the Oakland organization from Billy on down was so great with me. And, you know, that's what makes these series and these games so special, seeing old friends, you know, Bob Melvin, who I was with for a couple of years and the amazing job he's done with this roster and continues to do year in, year out. So um, I really appreciate it. But, it, you know, the A's, the whole organization and the team has a real special place in my heart. You know, when you came in, we all thought that this was going to be like a teardown, like we're seeing with a lot of teams in baseball. And then all of a sudden, your guys caught fire. What an interesting scenario you were in <laughs> at the deadline. Tell us what that was like. Yeah, you know, it was funny. I would, you know, see either uh, stuff written on the Internet or, you know, on MLB Network. People are talking about, oh, this is really, you know, complicating life for the Giants and and uh, for their front office. And I'm thinking, you know, if you think winning is a complication, you just, you know, either haven't worked in this game or followed this game enough because, uh, you know, everything's better when you're winning. And that's why July was such a fun month for us. And, uh, you know, with this market and the expectations of this fan base and the quality of teams that they've seen over the last decade, they want to see a winner. They want to see good baseball. And even though we are an organization in transition, uh, being able to do some of that work while continuing to field the competitive ball club. That's always been a goal of ours. And so for us to really pick up the play the last couple of months and work ourselves into the wild card picture, it's been fun to see and hopefully we can keep it up. I'm glad you said, yeah, it's about winning. In the end, at this level, some teams are – we know the players are trying and, and the and – the, and, and the manager and the coaches, but the front offices are, are in teardown mode. I, I like the fact that if you're winning, you know what? This is this is what it, this is what we're paying. This is why people are paying all this money. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I I learned from the best with that. I mean, Billy, uh, you know, in the market in Oakland doesn't always have uh, the same resources as at his disposal as some of his competitors, but tries to put together a winning ball club every year. And you know, I think about, um, you know, I started in '05, we went to the playoffs in '06, and you know, then we had some lean years. But even in those lean years, uh, you know, we never lost more than, I think, 88 games, never had a 90-loss season, let alone a 100-loss season. And, you know, in some of those seasons, we made the Matt Holiday trade and traded some good prospects to get him. And, you know, that was really a, you know, a signature of the franchise and the way Billy operated is he wanted to give the club a chance to compete and to win every year. And so for me coming here, I think those lessons being part of those teams. And then again, you know, after those years, the 2012 season happened where Bob did such a wonderful job with the team and where we turned it over and we had a lot of young players on that team and, you know, 12, 13, 14 went to the playoffs and now you see what they did again last year and having another good season this year. So, uh, you know, I think that's a lot of Billy's influence on the way I've tried to 
evaluate the situation and operate in this situation is always try to give yourself a chance. I know you and Billy are still very close and you, you still talk with him. What do you think is the number one thing you learned from him? I think that's it. I mean, what I just said, just, you know, this notion that I think people uh, think about baseball almost too much like some of the other sports, like football or like basketball, where you see tanking and trying to get a number one pick. And, um, you know, and that might work in those sports. In basketball, where a franchise player can totally turn your fortunes around, that's not true in baseball. One player isn't going to make the difference between winning and not. Uh, good baseball teams are the accumulation of a lot of good moves and a lot of good baseball evaluations, whether they're by scouts, whether they're by analysts. Um, and you just have to keep working and grinding. And I think that's the lesson that I learned from working from Billy those years and seeing multiple incarnations of competitive teams is just never stop working and never get yourself in a mindset where you're not trying to win and where you give up on a season. Yeah, we, we're seeing a lot of like-minded franchises right now, and I think that's why we can see some stalemate in free agency. We can see some stalemate right before the deadline. And people who, you know, they might be a little afraid to make moves, and that's one thing. We do the David Force show here on A's Cast Live, and I told this to David, and I've said this to Billy before. What I like about them, they're, they're fearless. They're right. not worried what someone's going to They're not worried if that the media is going to get after them or, or the fan base. They're going to do what's right, and they're never going to be scared. Is that something you also learned? Yeah, it's funny. I, I think back to the trade deadline leading up to it, and obviously we had a lot of players, and particularly relievers, that teams were interested in that – you know, competitive teams, teams that were in the playoff hunt were interested in. You know, I think back to some of the conversations I had with teams, you know, where the message was, hey, we're, we're hedging, we're not sure, you know, whether we're in it, we're not sure whether we're good enough, we're not sure whether we're good enough as the absolute best teams in baseball. And you're kind of thinking, well, if you don't want to compete, we do, so we'll just, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll take a run at it. So, uh, again, I think what you talked about with the fearlessness, you know, I remember – you know, something Billy talks about, he's made as many trades and really as many bold trades as anybody in the game. Um, and, you know, one thing that he would always say is don't focus so much on what you're giving up, focus on what you're getting. And that sounds so simple, but it's a really difficult mindset to get in because you can get bogged down in fearing what you're giving up and whether it may burn you and lose sight of the fact that you're getting something back that's really going to help you. And, you know, he's been around the block and he's made, you know, some great trades and, you know, he's made some other trades that maybe didn't work out as well. And he's certainly made a lot more good trades than not. But, you know, once you've had a couple of trades that maybe don't work out the way you plan, which is inevitable, and you realize you're still here and you're still standing, I think that creates a lot of that fearlessness. And that's really the best way to operate. Like we said, kind of getting back to the notion that, you know, baseball team, good baseball teams are accumulation of a lot of moves and a lot of good transactions and evaluations. If you get paralysis, how are you going to get there? And and that's where kind of Billy and David keep things moving, and they're always trying to figure out how to make their team better, and you've seen it again this year. Now you know A's and Giants don't make trades. That's right. Are we, are we finally <laughs> – is this thing going to thaw, and we're going to finally see some trades between you two? I think leading up to the deadline, I made a bit of a bold prediction that we're going to uh, break that streak. Um, and, you know, I had some conversations with those guys. I talked to them pretty regularly anyway. Um, and we had some substantive baseball talks that unfortunately didn't lead anywhere. But, yeah, the cold winter will thaw eventually, I think. You know, we, we maintain a pretty good dialogue. And, uh, you know, when there's a good baseball match, we're, we're not going to be afraid to pull the trigger on something that can potentially help us both. You got two guys here that meant that means so much to the franchise, that won the World Series. When you think about, you know, Buster Posey and the guy going today, Madison Bumgarner, you know, dealing with guys like that, what's, what's that like for you? Because everybody thought you were going to trade Madison Bumgarner, but you know, he, he's like a statue guy. Yeah. How, do, how do you deal <laughs> with guys like this? 
it's been a lot of fun for me. I mean, I've seen those guys from obviously across the Bay in Oakland. I've seen them, you know, from down south in L.A., you know, so been rivals with those guys in a couple of different situations. And so it's been cool to see them up front, see how they go about their business on a day in, day out basis, what they bring to the club, you know, the how the mentality of this club changes or lights up when Bumgarner's taking the hill, which I saw some with Kershaw in L.A. too. It's, it's a similar dynamic. So uh, it's been fun for me to get to appreciate those guys from up close. Um, and, you know, the fact that all these years later, they're still as motivated as any players that I've been around and still believe in what this team can accomplish this year. And you might think that with their history of success, there might be complacency in a season like this where nobody really knew how it was going to play out for us. But seeing the way they grind and, you know, the way they continue to lead this team has been pretty special. So you go down to Los Angeles, right? You go from you go from the A's where, you know, right. you're saving every penny to now you've got a payroll. It's the Dodgers. I mean, your TV contract. What was the L.A. experience? And, and a dramatic difference going from Oakland to Los Angeles, just living with yeah. your family. Yeah. What, what, what was that like? You know, it was funny. In the early days, I remember being asked about it, and I said, you know, in Oakland, it was almost like you could take a big portion of the player market and say, we don't have to worry about those guys, those hundreds of millions of dollars players, like just totally like segment that part of the player market out. Um, you know, suddenly when you're in a big market, nothing's off the table. I mean, you got to evaluate everything. You got to make some difficult decisions that involve a lot of money. And, uh, you know, it's interesting thinking back over my few years there, I think some of the best moves we made were smaller moves and not the moves where you're shelling out big dollars. And, um, you know, so I think both myself and Andrew Friedman took some of our quote unquote small market mentality and maintained that discipline, but you know knew that we had resources at our disposal and were able to use those too. So uh, it was a little bit of a culture shock at first, but uh, but you know eventually he acclimated. And it's a tremendous franchise, and it was a fun place to work for the last few years. Well, I said this to Stephen Boat earlier, and I'll say it to you. I know I'm not supposed to say we're rooting for you, but you know, <laughs> as A's fans, we're rooting for you because. It's like, you know, recently we've had Josh Reddick on, we've had Coco on, we've had Gio Gonzalez, we've had Sean Doolittle. And I think for all of you guys, you kind of grew in the game in Oakland. It'll always be a special place for you and your families. Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, back to that decade that I was there, and especially those last few years, 12, 13, 14, going through the playoffs, those guys, we just played the Nationals, Kurt Suzuki was in, yeah. and he's obviously another guy that I think of with that group, so... Yeah, it was a pretty special time, and again, continuing to be friends with these guys and seeing what they do. I admire them both kind of professionally and personally, so I obviously wish them the best as well. Hey, thank you for stopping by. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, he's an all-time A's favorite. He was an all-star with the Oakland Athletics and now doing really well with the Giants. Stephen Boat with us once again. How have you been? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's good to see some familiar faces today, and uh, but life's good. Life's good. I uh, couldn't be happier. You know, when I think of some of the guys we've had on recently, you know, Josh Reddick, Gio Gonzalez, Sean Doolittle, you know, we always talk about the time that you had in Oakland and how special Oakland was to you, and it's really, you know, where you became the player, where you became a two-time All-Star. Yeah, I mean, Oakland will always be a special place for, for myself and for my family. You know, in our time in Oakland, got established at the big league level, went to the playoffs, met some friends for life, had our two boys while we were playing in Oakland. So we watched our family grow from three to five, and it'll always feel like home. And, and part of why we love being with the Giants now is that we live in the same place we lived with Oakland. Life's very similar, and uh, we, like I said, we just couldn't be happier. And 
we often speak of our time in Oakland, and, and it's always a positive thing. And I think about the relationship that certain players have with the fan base. It's different than most anywhere else you'll ever play. Talk about that relationship you had with the fans and the chant, I believe in Stephen Vogt. It was really cool. Yeah, it is. I mean, it really is a special place. The fans in Oakland are are just unbelievable. You know, I always used to say, and I still say it, whether there's 10,000 or 30,000 there, they're loud and they're faithful. And, you know, I still speak with some fans personally. You know, there's two or three fans that I still keep in contact with. They're always giving our family well wishes. And uh, it, it's just, it's neat to have that kind of support from people that come to watch you play. And they love their team and they love the players and, and they just continue to do that. So it really is a special place. We miss it a lot. And, um, you know, it, it's going to be fun playing them these next couple of days and getting those memories back. As a catcher, I know you had a special bond with Bob Melvin, who was also a catcher, and Bob talks so fondly of you and the relationship that you two had. What was it like playing under Bob Melvin? It was unbelievable. Bob is uh, somebody I look up to probably the most in this game. Uh, I learned the most from him. Uh, our relationship was very good. We, we were very open about things, and um, I just learned a lot from watching him manage, but also just the conversations we'd have, pitch calling and game planning, how to get pitchers motivated, just different things that we spoke about one-on-one -on -one behind closed doors. And uh, he's always he's somebody that's always going to be very special to me. And uh, like I said, one of my biggest mentors and someone I look up to most in this game. And how great has it been for you to really come back? You got your game back. Yeah, I feel great. You know, obviously last year missing the whole year with the shoulder injury and not really knowing what, what I was going to get. But um, coming back and getting my first 100, 150 at-bats under my belt and really kind of these – this last month just kind of felt like I back to me. You know, it kind of took a while to get that feeling back after missing a year and a half. But um, I feel great. My body feels great. My shoulder feels good. And uh, the swing's been feeling pretty, pretty good, too. So it feels great to just be back playing. And um, I'm just so happy and grateful for every day I get to come out here. You know, for all the A's that leave us, you know, we always root for you. It's just tough that you've come over here. <laughs> so it's tough to root for you. But, you know, watch and tell us what it's been like as the Giants were dead in the water and all of a sudden hit that hot streak. Now you've hit a little bump in the road again, but you still have a shot at this thing getting into the playoffs. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, from spring training, there were people just saying that we weren't going to have a good year. You know, and I think that didn't sit well with any of us at spring. And then, you know, we got hot in July and, and been playing really good ball. Really the last three months we've been playing pretty good baseball. So, uh, you know, little little tough start to this homestand and coming out of the, the trade deadline. We had some moves that were made, and I think it takes guys a little bit of time for, to get acclimated and for us to kind of figure into our new roles maybe. But, um, you know, we're, we, we just took three or four from a really good Phillies team. We feel good about the way we're playing. We've got some really good young arms, and, uh, you know, when they put it together, it's going to be pretty special. So we like where we're at. You know, obviously we wish we were a few games, you know, closer to that wild card, but we're still in it. There's just, there's a lot of teams in baseball that can't say they're in it anymore, and we're one of them, and that's all we need. We just need our foot in the door. We're going to play hard, and we're going to play to play to get to the playoffs and win because that's, uh, that's what we want to do, and that's what this team and this franchise knows is winning, and uh, I think you can't discount that. Another former A that's going to join us is the president of baseball operations, Farhan. He's going to join us as we start the show, A's Cast Live. And what did it mean to you guys that he didn't really make any major moves like Madison Bumgarner? What did that do for the clubhouse? I think it showed that, you know, we all knew he had a job to do. And, he, I, you know, I think um, the moves he made, they hurt. You know, you, whenever, whenever you take bullpen pieces away, it, it hurts your team. But we've got some guys that have filled in greatly. Uh, Sam Coonrod's done a great job filling in. But, um, you know, I think the fact that he, he we kept Bum and, and Will Smith around, I think it showed, hey, we're, we're still trying to win. Where, you know, we, we might have to make some moves to, to get some players in here for the farm system and understand that the uh, the organizational depth is an important piece, too. 
but um, he didn't show us that he's pulling the plug. So I think, uh, you know, Farhan's done a great job this year of just mixing and matching and trying to find ways to get guys in here that are going to help us win. And, uh, you know, it's it's been an up-and-down year, but right now we feel good about our team. We feel good about the fact that we're six weeks to go and we're only a couple games back and we've got a real chance to get into this thing. And I think about you. You mentioned the young pitching. For a veteran catcher, you're so key for getting these guys through their outings and their appearances. What's that like for you working with all these young arms? It's been fun, you know, obviously getting, uh, getting to work alongside with Buster Posey, a Hall of Fame catcher that, you know, we, we I've learned a lot from him and I think we put our heads together pretty well on how to help these young guys along and, um, and they get a chance to watch Madison Bumgarner pitch every five days. You know, you can't discount that as well to watch the competitor that he is, the way that he prepares. And uh, these guys are really good. They're really good and talented, and they all work hard. So it's been fun, and it's it's fun to watch the young guys learning on the fly. It's really, it's uh, you know, now that I've had a lot of experience doing that with Oakland, uh, with a lot of the young pitchers we had coming up. And uh, so now to kind of be on the other side of it and, and helping these guys along has been a lot of fun for me. Well, I can tell you when we go back over to the Coliseum, you're going to get a really big uh, applause from the fans, and, a, and I know that's going to mean a lot to you. It'll mean the world. I, we, Like I said, we've loved our time in Oakland. We miss it. We miss the people. You know, I'm really looking forward to seeing some of the fans, security guards, uh, vendors. You know, I know my wife Alyssa is too. We're, we're really looking forward just to reconnecting with our family. You know, that's really what we feel like with Oakland is those people were our family, and uh, we, we can't wait to see them. So, uh, I'm, I'm excited to go back to the Coliseum, but uh, hopefully we can take care of the take care of these two games against the A's in San Fran first. Well, I personally want to thank you because for all the time, uh, you know, whether it was the All-Star game, you'd come on our show. You've always been very good to our program, so I want to thank you for that, and uh, good luck in this series. I appreciate it very much. It's always good to, to reconnect with you guys. Jim Bowden, you can follow him on Twitter, at Jim Bowden GM, former general manager, of course, with the Cincinnati Reds and the Washington Nationals. Jim, what's going on? How are you? I'm doing great, Roxy. Great to be back with you. Thanks for the time, man. Uh, First off, I was reading your latest article today that you put out about the top 20 free agents who will be available this offseason, and you brought up some interesting names and some interesting connections with teams, and the first thing that jumped out to me, obviously, Jim, you know me working for the A's, is you had – the A's link possibly to Hunjin Ryu. Yeah, look, I don't think there's any question that these Oakland A's are a really good team. You know, you and I have talked about it. Really special defensively, especially up the middle with Simeon and Loriano on the corners with Olsen and Chapman. To win a world championship, though, you know, it's all about starting pitching here. And I don't think there's any question that, you know, Billy Bean has always done the best he can within the financial parameters that he's got and, that some of his pickups aren't always the best, but they seem to work out. Mike Fires, you saw Homer Bailey today, but I don't think there's any question that he always is a GM that or a president that comes in and surprises you whether Yoannis Cespedes signing or he'll make a move and, and pick up John Lester. I mean, he's got a history of doing that. I wouldn't be surprised if he plays on Hunjin Ryu, although I think it's unlikely he leaves the Dodgers. Well, well, this year, and you mentioned Billy, and he's usually aggressive, and they didn't make that bombshell move but they made some other moves around it for example Bailey who pitched tremendously today Tanner Roark uh, also Jake Diekman what did you think of the A's around the deadline I thought Billy did and David Force did what they do you know they were very uh, they looked at good value they didn't want to in this particular case they didn't give up their best prospects like sometimes they do and of course you, you don't want to give up a Lizardo or an AJ Puck of course um, but I thought given you know what they could do I thought they did an, an excellent job no doubt I mean 
Look at the New York Yankees. They wanted a starting pitcher. They didn't get one, you know, and of course there's a lot of reasons for that. But, you know, Billy didn't wait for the big fish he couldn't get. He understood the prices of what was out there. They didn't want to do their two young stud starters, uh, which obviously is the right play. So, you know, I thought given the success he's had in the past with guys like Fires and Anderson and Cahill and the other Edwin Jackson and all those type of moves that he just continued the, you know, his modus operandi. And so I thought he did a really good job, didn't give up very much, took on some money. Uh, not too much money, but certainly Roark and Bailey have had history and snapshots of success. So I thought, you know, he did what he always does. Jim Bowen with us here on Ace Cast Live. And we're, we saw a lot of GMs are becoming at least more reluctant, Jim, to, to part with some of their higher prospects and maybe going for it. The philosophy, and look, you were in, the, in that chair. You made aggressive moves to try to win. What's it like when you're fielding phone calls for some of those high-end prospects? Yeah, they're not trading. Teams aren't going to trade the high-end prospects anymore, the top guys. And I'll, I'll give you the perfect example. It's the Houston Astros. So they, they've done the unthinkable, right? Uh, they traded for three number one starters. Like, it's been amazing to watch. Justin Verlander, Garrett Cole, and now Zach Greinke. And in all three deals, the teams they were talking with wanted Kyle Tucker or Forrest Whitley to start the conversation. And they just came right out and said, we're not trading either one of them, no matter what. We'll walk away from Verlander, we'll walk away from Cole, we'll walk away from Greinke, but we're not trading Tucker and we're not trading Whitley. Um, and and that's, that's 2019 GMing. That's just the way it is. And so if you want to do a deal, you got to look at the rest of the team and the rest of the players. The New York Yankees had an opportunity to make deals. Everybody asked for, um, for Debbie, the, uh, Debbie Garcia, the number one pitching prospect of the Yankees. Brian Cashman, New York Yankees. No, no, I'm not moving him. I'll talk about these other guys, not moving him. And that's just the way, you know, GMs are these days. You know, they, they start the conversation. They tell you who's not um, available. And then if you want to do a deal after that, you can work through it. And, and that deal for Granke, Jim, it happened literally right before the deadline. It, it comes out. Did it catch you by surprise? Were you shocked when all of a sudden right before that deadline that the news filters in that the Astros had picked up Granke? Shocked, stunned. I think the whole world was. I mean, Ken Rosenthal from The Athletic is the one that broke the story when it broke, and he didn't even believe it. He got the word like two minutes of, and he wouldn't run with it because he, he wasn't sure. He, he couldn't believe it was true. It wasn't out there at all. And, in fact, what's interesting is afterwards, Jeff Luno, the, the GM of the Astros, said he never even had a conversation about Grinke until the Tuesday before the deadline. The day before the deadline was the first phone call for Grinke. No other conversations. The deal happened within 24 hours, uh, and they kept it under wraps, and it went quietly, and it went swiftly, and uh, it was just a phenomenal job by Luno pivoting, you know, because he was up against the same thing the Yankees were. He needed a starting pitcher, and it wasn't there. Giants weren't going to trade Bumgarner. Tigers weren't going to trade Boyd. The Rangers weren't going to trade Miner. So all these starters that everybody thought was going to move didn't move. Bauer ends up going to the other league because Cleveland – didn't want to trade him in, 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 a, in the same league where they might have to play him in the postseason. Uh, the Blue Jays made the trade on Sunday, uh, three days before the deadline, in a, in a shocking move. Instead of waiting to the deadline, they went first, which when I asked Mark Shapiro, the president, this week, he said that's a Ross Atkins question. Ross is his GM. Well, I, I was kind of surprised he said that's a Ross Atkins question. Um, but it was a, a very unique strategy. So, 
at the end of the day, there weren't a lot available. And so to watch Jeff Luno pivot first conversation Tuesday and got it done on Wednesday, it was just a tremendous job. And to be able to hold on to all your top prospects, I mean, he did a really good job. Jim, also in your article, Garrett Cole was the number one free agent prospect. Uh, And you can read Jim's article in The Athletic, which was posted this morning. But Garrett Cole is your number one uh, free agent on this list. What have you seen from him this season that's taken his game up where he hasn't necessarily had this consistency? We've seen flashes of it, but what has changed in your eyes with Garrett Cole? Yeah, as you know, back in March, he was my pick for the Cy Young Award. Um, I picked him in the American League. I picked Walker Bueller in the National League. I'm not going to be right on either one, but I do think Cole will finish in the top three, and it's because he's at that right age. You know, Houston has the best analytics in the game. We've seen what it's done for Verlander. We've seen what it did to Charlie Morton. And Cole really started embracing it, and he really figured it out. And he's had the privilege of getting to work with Brent Strom, the pitching coach. He's got the privilege of, of pitching with Verlander. Those guys talk baseball all the time. And he's just really figured out pitch sequencing. He can really command the ball. If you watch the catcher's mitt when he pitches, it doesn't have to move. He puts it right where he wants to. He understands how to own the top of the strike zone. His breaking ball is nasty. I mean, his wins above replacement is four. You realize he's already struck out 217 guys this year. I mean, it's unbelievable how dominant he's been. Well, with Garrett Cole, then, and you listed the teams that he could possibly go to, maybe return to Southern California with the Angels. Uh, of course, he played his college ball at UCLA. He's from Orange County. But, of course, it's the heavy hitters. Where do you anticipate him ending up? Yeah, I mean, I I said in the article that I thought the best fit was the Angels. I think Artie Moreno owes it to Mike Trout to try to win for Mike. And I think getting an ace like Cole changes everything for the Angels. Um, And and I'm not going to be surprised if Artie decides to take, as the Pujols money starts to come off the books, take that money and allocate it to Cole. I mean, that's the one free agent that would make sense. Um, I'll be shocked if the Yankees don't play at a high level. So I, I think they will do that. Houston would like to retain him, but I think Jeff Luno is going to walk away because they're going to—they got so many guys to sign. It gets to a certain level where I just don't think he's going to do the thirty-five to thirty-eight million a year that it's going to take for seven or eight years of the contract. I'm not going to be surprised if Farhan Zaidi in San Francisco across the bay from you. I'm not going to be surprised if he plays. They played on Harper. I don't know why he wouldn't uh, play on an ace like Garrett Cole if you're going to do that. So. You know, I think it's the big market teams, but if I had to put money on what team right now, I'd put it on the Angels. You know, I know he loves Orange County. He grew up there. You mentioned he went to UCLA. I think he'd love to go home. And I, I think if the Angels want to step up, if they, if, if Artie Moreno's willing to bring out the checkbook, I think that's where he ends up. Also high on your list, and he's still a giant, Madison Bumgarner. There was some question at the deadline, what was going to happen with him? Do you expect him to come back to the Giants this offseason? I don't know where he goes. I really don't. Uh, Madison is one of those guys that keeps to himself, you know, and uh, doesn't, you know, he's like the Kawhi Leonard, I think, of the, the NBA, where you just, <laughs> you really don't know what he's thinking or, or where he wants to go. You know, I, I just figured this. The Giants should have traded him at the deadline. They're not making the playoffs. Um, if you don't trade him, then w- what were you doing? You made five trades at the deadline. You held on to Bumgarner and Smith, the two free agents. So I figured by holding on to him, that's a message that they want to re-sign him. You know, he's still in his 20s. Um, and I'd love to see Bumgarner, you know, retire a giant. I'm never going to forget the World Series in 10, 12, and 14. I'm never going to forget him running the table against the Royals and pitching out of the bullpen like he did on that Saturday. 
Uh, it was an incredible World Series. I always called the Giants the San Francisco Bumgarners that year. So <laughs> I would if I would guess he would return. But I got to tell you, I don't know what's in his brain. Like I, I didn't understand, you know, all the teams that he put the no trade to. Like every contender was on his no trade list except Tampa and Minnesota. So I, I, I just don't know what he's thinking. But if, if you're, what I said is my best guess would be that he goes back to San Francisco. I would think Farhan would want him back. I mean, you know, this it's a thin market of pitching, and I think after Cole and Hunjin Ryu, I, I think Bumgarner's the next best pitcher out there. I think he's better than Zach Wheeler, so um, I wouldn't be surprised if he returns. Final couple minutes with Jim Bowden here on A's Cast Live. A's a 9-5 win over the Giants in San Francisco today, and Bruce Bochy is winding it down, approaching 2,000 wins. Who replaces him in San Francisco? What does Farhan do for a new manager? I don't know. I would think he's going to pick a younger guy, um, and he'll pick someone that is a long-term solution to work with him as a partner. Uh, someone that's going to understand analytics and the influence and impact the front office is going to have in that job. Uh, I know what I would do if I was the San Francisco Giants. I would do everything I could to get Kevin Cash away from Tampa Bay. I would offer them player in a trade. I would offer them money, and I would make Kevin Cash um, as rich as you need to make him rich. I think Kevin Cash is going to be a star in this game. And like Joe Madden, when he left Tampa for the Cubs, I, I think they'll allow Kevin to go to a big market team like San Francisco to really be able to show off what he's able to do. It would be a really good play for him. But he is signed long-term with Tampa. I don't think it would be easy to get him from there. But I think he'd be the perfect replacement for both. You know, it's really hard to replace a Hall of Fame manager, and it's an important position. Um, but I'm not going to be surprised if it's an under-the-radar no-name type of hire by Farhan because that would fit his personality. Jim, great stuff. Really appreciate you making time and, and squeezing me in. I, you're, you're as busy as anybody this time of the year, and really appreciate you making time for me today. Thanks, Roxy. Great being on with you again. One of the newcomers to the A's, Tanner Roark, joins us here on A's Cast Live on the field. Welcome, Tanner. How you doing? Good. How you guys doing? Good. Thanks for joining us, man. It's, how's it been so far in your brief time here at the A's a couple of weeks? Great. Um, you know the guys are the guys are great. The clubhouse is, you know, the guys in the clubhouse they know how to keep it loose, keep it fun, um, and I fit right in with that. What was it like for you in the days and hours leading up to the deadline when you knew eh, there was a possibility you'd get moved, but you never know if or where it's going to happen? Well, it happened at an Arby's, right? Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. Well, you never yeah. know where it's going to happen. On my way driving down to Atlanta, bringing my wife uh, the family car for the kids. Um, I mean, I knew. That that's how the game's going this year, or has past two years. You know, trade deadline comes around with a guy that's free agent. Uh, you know, move them, and that's been in the back of my mind. But you know, it's it's I've never been through it before, so it was very unique, uh, very different, strange. You know, being traded in the off season, didn't expect that, and uh, you know, leading up to the hours before, I didn't. You know, I. Didn't think that I'd be driving down to Atlanta and then thank God I was only 20 minutes out uh, of Cincinnati and then, you know, started hearing, hearing chatter. So, What's it like, what's the feeling also, Tanner, like for you that you're wanted by a team to the pennant race and they want you because they know how you can come in here and help. What does that 
feeling like for you and the message to somebody coming over to a new it team? It feels really good. Uh, just a confidence builder, knowing that, you know, people are, other teams are watching you. They're out there watching you. Um, they they know who you are, you know, behind the curtains. And, uh, you know, I think that's, it feels really good. It feels, makes you feel special in a way um, to come in. Knowing that the wild car race, like it's it's on, you know, here in here in Oakland. So, you know, I'm just gonna come in here and do my best and learn from each every guy, try to teach other guys, you know, some things along the way. Um, you know, spread my knowledge and and uh, get to know everybody. You and Homer crossed over in Cincinnati, right? You were teammates with the Reds. No, no, no you he didn't. Was, okay, yeah, you he missed was, him. Yeah, missed he was him. he was already out of there. But uh, so I'm wondering, you know, what what kind of inkling did you have before you got here of what this clubhouse was like because it's a pretty unique clubhouse so I'm told in Major League Baseball and what have been your impressions now being a member of this clubhouse well I mean just just facing these guys earlier this year you know um, I knew their their lineup was tough and um, young and, and they could they could bang a little bit so you know I, was, I, I knew that coming in and then you know finally getting to know know the guys it's it's a very like a unique situation just coming in the middle of the season and you're right into a pennant race and everybody's wanting to win everybody's you know got each other's back and counting on one another and um, yeah the locker room situation is it is what it is and that's what it keeps I feel like for you know short time I've been here it keeps everybody everybody's close so you know conversations there's talking there's not uh, as many cell phones and, and <laughs> okay. watching movies on your iPad. There's no like there's nowhere to to get away to. So it's <laughs> it forces us, which is good. Yeah. And that's what keeps 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 the team close and you know, keeps it fun and you know, and talking with people it's it's uh crazy. It's a, yeah, it's a rare it's a rarity these days. <laughs> yeah. Hey Matt Williams managed you in Washington, Blake Trinan was with you there at the Nationals. Did that help make it feel a little smoother over here as your transition yeah it de definitely did uh you know knowing knowing those two uh and coming in here just it was a little more welcoming um but like with these guys that are already they're already so talkative and and they like to mess around which fits in right where i am i i love to to mess around and you know uh talk some trash here and there so <laughs> i know they, they do that in there so i'm i'm still observing see who the main trash talkers are but i'm 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 weeding them out so you'll let us know when you find out yeah oh yeah yeah actually i don't know i don't know if i know. <laughs> <laughs> no i'm sure you won't hey we were just having the conversation about uh, the speculation of the giants moving in the fences over there at oracle and talking about pitchers parks hitters parks just your thoughts on on pitching here at the coliseum which is clearly a pitcher's park yes um I mean, I, I love it because you feel like you're you're a lot closer to to home plate. So, you know, feels like my 92 mile an hour is is 97 <laughs> to me to me coming out. So, you know, that's a that's a good thing to have right away. I gotta imagine you love all the foul ground here too. Yes, that's also you know it's it's a unique field uh, having football and and baseball in the same field. Um, but I feel like there's also there's baseball is trying to produce more runs and you know there's not really many pitchers parks going to be out there anymore i mean didn't the marlins move their field in twice yeah yeah, yeah. twice uh san francisco's doing it that sounds like 
Yeah, I heard that when I was out there. They're trying to make your life more difficult. I man. know. What the hell? Oh, well. we, we were talking with Matt Williams before, but just about the ball. Does the ball feel different to you? It doesn't feel different. It, it doesn't do, I don't know. I mean, MLB has come out and already said that they've, they've, they've changed the ball a little bit. And Justin Verlander, your opponent tomorrow night, clearly doesn't agree with what MLB had to say. <laughs> what did it, what did it, what did it? Oh, he was very outspoken that the ball's definitely different, and when he grips it, it feels harder. He was having the same uh, feelings as far as the movement. It's not the same. That there's a definite juice ball is what he was saying. It's definitely, I definitely, it's definitely different. I mean, I don't know. I can't put my finger on it exactly, but it's does just. It, does it feel harder, or is it harder to dig into the seams for you? No, I, th I think it's, it is. I would say it's harder for sure. Mm -hmm. There's not. Uh, it doesn't feel sometimes if you you know you had balls in the past. I'd like to see what this ball this year was like, as so opposed to let's say one last yeah, year. Yeah, so one one that I have from my major league debut in in 13. I'm, I got one at home. I'm gonna see what uh, what the difference are in feel. I don't know. How nice is it? I mean, you get traded, you can be traded anywhere, and you go from a team in, in Cincinnati that was not a contender to a team here that is clearly contending for a wild card spot. I mean, how nice is it to all of a sudden have postseason aspirations in play, no, it right? Feel, it feels good. Uh, you know, we missed out on it last year in D.C., and, um, you know, we're, we were trying to put together something in, in Cincinnati, and, you know, um, got traded. So now coming to a contender, it's in the AL, which I've never pitched in, and yep. never, never been, yeah, in the AL at, at all, or out here on the West Coast. So, do you miss hitting? Yeah, I, I, I liked it. I like, I like hitting. Yeah, yeah. You try to move. Hey, you know, Skip, you can move me up a couple days. I could, I could go in the National League. No, board. there's, a, there's, <laughs> there's, uh, there's a line. There's, yeah, there's. I mean, you, you see, uh, Brett Anderson. Well, Anderson's hitting six sixty seven. Yeah, so you know, you know, Homer had Homer had a couple hits two yesterday. Two hits yesterday. You know, so I might be. Third in line. Tanner Roark with us here on A's Cast Live. And you just got to spend a week in Chicago. How fun was that? Great. Uh, that's where I'm, I live like I was born and raised mm -hmm. in an hour and 15 minutes south in Wilmington, Illinois. Um, small town. But, yeah, it was, it was good to see everybody. My mom, my dad. My, my mom and dad actually took my, my, two, my two girls for the week. So me and the wife and, and the baby boy got to spend some time. Oh, awesome. Yeah, how, old, how old are your girls? Uh, Ten. Soon to be Ten. Four and my boy is 11 months. Wow. wow, you got your hands full. Oh yeah, oh yeah. She's yeah. she's back home in Atlanta right now. Yeah, with her hands full. Oh, wow, <laughs> they, they they coming out at all for the stretch the, run? The, my my daughter, my oldest, just started school today. Oh, right. So yeah, that school thing. Me and Archie can put yeah. the 11 month old on a flight just let like <laughs> go by herself. Yeah. She's done it plenty of times and <laughs> she knows how to do it. It's just uh, you know, kids they don't like to follow rules or or listen the the greatest all the time. So. So no matter what uniform you're wearing, pitching against the team that you guys are playing this weekend is daunting, right? Yeah. You, you pitched against the Astros. You know this lineup. I mean, what's it like trying to trying to solve a lineup where, I mean, if there are any holes, they're, they're, they're not very big? Well, I just don't think you just can't make it bigger than it, than it is. Um, don't try to psych yourself out over it. It's, you got to face them. So uh, make your pitches, uh, execute your pitches. Um, keep them off balance. You know, don't let them feel comfortable out there at the plate. 
you know. So um, I feel like I do a, a decent job at that, uh, pitching in and, you know, moving the ball around. And that's what I, I feel like is, is successful, is the key to success against this lineup. Yep. Now that you don't have to hit, but do you think about the starting pitcher on the other side knowing you're going up against Verlander tomorrow night? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, if I was hitting, I would uh, <laughs> definitely be, like, trying to get a hit off him. But, you know, he's he's one of the greatest in the game, and it would be, be a great feeling to beat him. Well, great stuff. Welcome to the ball club. Welcome to the Bay Area. It's been great to watch you pitch, and you get to pitch some meaningful games here down the stretch. It's going to be great to watch. Let's do it. Tanner Roark joining us here on A's Cast Live. A's and Astros opening a four-game series, and then the weather. Just I know you're a newcomer, but to the bay, to the, the team, it's not usually like that. I know, I know. It's <laughs> definitely. I was I was out in left field, and my yeah. right side of my face was burning <laughs> up a little bit. I was, feels good though. We don't yeah. have the humidity. Though. I know, no humidity, yeah, just right. just heat. Yeah. Just heat it's right. nice in the shade though now. Yeah. Oh, but he's agreed. in the sun still. You guys are in the <laughs> yeah. Thanks again, Tanner. Appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. Tom Verducci is joining us here on A's Cast Live, one of the premier columnists in all of Major League Baseball, and also you get to see him on the MLB Network. How are we doing? Uh, I'm doing great. I'm here for FS1 tomorrow. Astros A's, looking forward to it. Yeah, this is a, this is a very fun series. And by the way, this is a whole new thing. We're a guinea pig in Major League Baseball. We're on a 24 – we have a 24-7 streaming station on TuneIn. Now, we air the pre and post and the games live, but we have a 24-7 station going on the TuneIn app, and we're the only team in baseball allowed to do this. We're the only team to have a live talk show like this in baseball. So this is – this potentially is the future of Major League Baseball right here. Hey, sign me up, man. If I want my A's fix, if I want my inside info at 2.45 a.m., I know where to go. This is where you – you go i can't get enough baseball so sign me up it's like i say people ask me what's like at mlb network it's a great place to work but it's like cell phones i can't imagine how we got by without it all those years how do we get through college without the internet you don't want to know <laughs> no i was there trust me I, I remember you actually had to go to the library back in the day <laughs> people are saying what's a library <laughs> Tonight, you know, we've been talking. We had Steve Sparks on earlier today, and it's been the great thing. All these teams have been very supportive, bringing players out and everything to be on the show. And, you know, the thing about what Verlander's doing at his age is just so special that he's kind of reinvented himself with all the technology and the great job that the Astros do with kind of remaking players and making them better. Just talk about Verlander at 36. It's pretty amazing because there was a point, I think it was three years ago, when he actually was near tears. I think it was a game in Pittsburgh where he thought his career was over with. His stuff was down. He had that sports hernia injury that really limited him physically, and his stuff just wasn't playing the same. He bounced back from that physically, even though the next year wasn't great. Gets to Houston, and we all know what the Astros have done with all kinds of pitching. Everybody seems to be better once they get to Houston. They sat him down. They said, listen, you're doing hitters a favor by throwing them two-seam fastballs. It's not a very good pitch. Here's the data. And they showed him the data, and he said, you're right. They also had high-speed cameras, which they did not have in Detroit, that showed how the ball was coming off his fingertips, literally off his fingertips the wrong way. He was able to adjust that. That slider right now, I know we all love his fastball and his curveball, but that slider is one of the best in baseball. So give him credit. He put in the extra work. The Astros found some keys to make it really play up. 
Um, but it's hard to see anybody else in baseball at this age who I think is better than ever. And I truly mean that for a guy who's won a Cy Young and MVP. I think his stuff is better than ever. Is this the future of the game? Is not only finding young prospects, but being able to look at other teams going, you know what, if we got that guy, we can remake him and make him better. No question about that. You just hit on something that's really important in today's game. Everybody pretty much has the same information. So what they did here in Oakland back, you know, now 15, 20 years ago, that's kind of passe. Everybody's kind of working with the same amount of information. So the inefficiency is now now is identifying underutilized talent. What do we see in a player that can make him better and get him to the next level? What, what kind of pitch is he not using well? What can we do with this swing? Uh, the Dodgers have been unbelievable at that, at finding guys like Max Muncy and Cody Bellinger in the minor leagues going through swing changes to become completely different players. So I, I think the value now is identifying these players who have a higher level to their game and unlocking those keys to do it. Now, we only hear about all the swing changes that work. There's a lot of guys out there that change their swing we don't hear about. So it's not as easy as, as just plucking somebody out and, and giving them a different pitch or a different swing. But I do think you hit on something that's really important in today's game. That's where player development is really super important, not just on people you draft, but finding people in other organizations. So we bring up the Astros, and then you bring up the Dodgers. And, uh, of course, if we go down to the desert right now, they're the two favorites to win the World Series. You know what? I think, uh, yeah, I mean, the Yankees I put as the third team in that group. Um, I got to tell you, my preseason pick was Dodgers over Astros in the World Series. I don't think that was going out on any limb. Um, but I think because those teams that you mentioned are just so deep, it's hard to imagine them in a postseason scenario that teams get through them in five or seven games, especially for me with Houston and the American League. I know the Yankees can bang anybody with anybody with uh, the power that they have, but they can't match up to the starting pitching that Houston has, and you still have to win or at least draw the first half of a baseball game in the postseason, and that's going to be hard for any team to do against Houston. Well, obviously you're here, FS1. Your game's going to be on tomorrow, and so you got to see uh – Ten home runs here at the Coliseum. This used to be a pitcher's ballpark, one of the toughest places to hit it out, and sets a record yesterday, ten home runs. What happened? I know it was a warm night, but come on. I don't think the baseball had anything to do with it, do you? It, it is a different baseball this year. There's no question. Uh, Major League Baseball doesn't understand why, but they do acknowledge that there's less drag on the baseball. Less drag means when the, you hit the ball in the air, it's going to go a little bit farther. The leather is slicker. The seams are lower. The ball is wound tighter. All those things contribute to a baseball now that that flies a lot farther. I mean, I, I checked at the halfway point at the All-Star break. Home runs hit 450 feet or more. That's a bomb, right? 450 is the kind of home run you tell everybody about it. But now it's become commonplace, literally twice as many of those this year as opposed to last year. The only difference is the baseball. The hitters are great. Don't get me wrong. They've learned to hit the ball in the air. Uh, there's no question swings are tailored to get the ball in the air, but the baseball has contributed to a game that just pivots on home runs, and you saw that no better example than last night. You know, I, I, I kind of compare it to golf where they started making these Pro Vs so good and they were going so far that, you know, the USGA and the PGA Tour, they had to go, whoa, 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 hey, you got to <laughs> scale this thing back. And it's kind of – they've made the ball too good. But I like that analogy because you also have to give the golfers credit for taking advantage of the ball and the way they can drive it 350, 375, 400. That's what hitters are doing in today's game. They're all leveraging their swings to get underneath the baseball and when they make contact, and they're more than willing to take a third strike or three swings and misses to get those payoffs or the home run swings. 
they've done a great job, I think, the way young hitters are taught to get the baseball in the air because it's, as I said, it's a game. If you're a pitcher now, your job, your first job is defend the home run. That's a hard way to pitch. Wow. You can make good pitches, and, you know, even middle infielders are taking you out the other way. Remember when they pitched to contact. Now no, it's I, like, don't give up home runs. You know, Justin Verlander used exactly that phrase because it used to be you wanted to work the baseball off the barrel of the bat to get weak contact. Now he said the reason why walks are up is because now you're pitching to swing and miss. Just pitching to contact is not enough. You have to miss the bat now, and that's why you see pitchers throwing more breaking balls, and that's why you see more walks. So you've been studying up on the A's. What are you seeing with the green and gold? A lot of last year, right, the second half of the season, uh, Melvin does a great job. Teams that get better as the season goes on, another case here. Um, I'm really impressed with Marcus Simeon, the way he has really improved. I just spent a lot of time talking to him because I'm, I had to tell him, I mean, it's rare for a player to get this better in all phases of the game when he's got as much experience under his belt as he already has. It's credit to the work that he's done, the credit to the work the A's staff has done with him. Um, of course, Chapman is getting himself into the MVP conversation with the way he's played on both sides of the ball, especially in the last week. And i got to tell you, I'm, a, I'm kind of intrigued by that rotation in Las Vegas as much as I am the one here. You know, with Harvey in the fold now, Luzardo coming back, Manaya might be the first one back in that group. It's interesting to see who's going to help this team down the stretch. You know, that's a great thing about where our office is, right? We get to see everything, and players come by, and we put the headsets on. I was watching you talk to Marcus, and I think it's a story that so many baseball fans don't know how remarkable it is that this guy was by far the worst shortstop. <laughs> it was so tough to watch. He could have made way more errors if first baseman didn't help him. He led the league in errors, and now he's a guy who could win a gold glove. Yeah, and I think it began with Ron Washington, some of the work that he did with him here, one of the great infield coaches. But, again, it's the hard work that, that Marcus has put in. You know, one of the things I talked to him about is playing next to Matt Chapman. He's actually learned some things. If you watch him take his position, he's much lower. Marcus is playing the shortstop position. He picked that up from Matt Chapman. Usually you'll see a shortstop. I always compare it to safety rather than corner in the NFL, where the shortstop is more of a read-react position where you stand a little taller. But Marcus almost plays shortstop like a third baseman where he's so low, gets in a very athletic position. Shades more to the middle of the field than he used to. All these things come into play, but again, it takes a lot of hard work. And offensively now, you're talking about a guy who has reduced his strikeout rate, I think, three or four consecutive years here. That's hard to do in today's game with as many strikeouts as they are. So uh, good luck finding another player, I think, more improved than Marcus Simeon, the way he's playing the game right now. So you know all of us in baseball are MLB Network junkies, and we all love the show MLB Now. And just to watch over the years – just to watch television with analytics, and now we have everything stat cast, and we have all this technology, to watch the way our game's covered and to watch you guys be on the show, how much fun is it to be on that show with Brian Kenny? Yeah, it's so much fun. Every show there is great. I mean, the vibe there is great. It sounds corny, but everybody who works there truly loves baseball. It's, it's our favorite sport. We're all sports fans, but everybody who works there has baseball number one, and I think that shows in what you see. Uh, on your screen, not even just so much the talent uh, the people you see on camera, but everybody behind the scenes as well. So it's really cool now, especially that a lot of this data that we have here, it's still fairly new, but I think the audience is willing and able to absorb a lot more of that. Um, it's more accepted, I think, in today's game, certainly among younger fans and younger players. Younger players can't get enough of some of the 
statistical information and technology and the way it's used in today's game, I think that's a great thing. Going back to what uh, the old pitching coach here, Rick Peterson, used to say, in God we trust, everybody else must bring data. <laughs> it was true then, it's true now. Are you buying uh, the stuff in the Atlantic League could end up in Major League Baseball? Uh, listen, it's truly a laboratory to try things out. I'm not buying the idea of moving the bound back two feet. Um, I, that's not going to happen. Uh, stealing first base, which they can do now. If you swing and miss at a pitch at strike three, it goes to the backstop. You can go run to first. That's not going to happen. Um, you know, it's nice that baseball is willing to try these things. Robot umpires aren't close to being acceptable. I think there's a day we might see it in the big leagues, but in terms of the technology, when you roll that out, that has to be 100% perfect, and we're not there yet or even close to there. They've had some issues first year, it's to be expected, but I like the idea they're willing to try these things out, that there's no more sacred cows in the game. The only thing I'd like to see is I wouldn't mind seeing a pitch clock in the major league game. Um, I think the biggest downfall in the way the game is played now is just the pace between pitches, and I think baseball, the players themselves, can do a better job of giving people more action in less period of time. Because right now what we're doing is we're giving fans the complete opposite of what the entertainment world really is predicated on. We're giving people less action over a longer period of time. That is not a winning formula. That has to be addressed. Big fan. We, we truly appreciate it. And let's end on this. Yeah. It's all said and done. Are the A's in that wild card game? I'm going to say yes. Um, again, I like the way this team finishes out second halves of season. They're a hot team right now. I know the schedule starts to get difficult right here, Houston, New York, Houston. But, uh, yeah, I think they're going to get stronger down the stretch with some of those pitchers I mentioned coming back. We, I've had you on my shows for years in radio, but now with this special venture, this is great, and uh, we'll play in the pregame show. Thank you so much for stopping by. It's, it's always great catching up. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.